Hey everyone, my name is George Liberopoulos, I'm your host, and welcome to the Impactology Podcast, a podcast for people who want to live with more meaning, work smarter, and have more impact at what they do best. This is where you can be inspired by storytelling that allows you to grow, learn, and achieve your goals. Take action. This is the Impactology Podcast. Oh, I remember it well. Oh my God, George Clooney's on my belly. We're going to have an impact. To focus on this voice inside you. Go change. something just great. Keep nurturing. That is Impactology. Welcome to the Impactology Podcast. My name is George Liberopoulos and I'm your host. And I welcome you to the platform where you get a chance to meet inspiring people who are inspiring other people to get the most out of what they do best. In this episode, you'll hear from Cole Fink, and Cole is someone who I really admire, and I love chatting with him as part of this episode. Read any of Cole's content, watch any of his videos, and you'll walk away feeling better about yourself. Cole's got this natural ability to make the complex really easy to understand. Cole is a speaker, author, and advisor to solopreneurs, and we'll be discussing the idea of a solopreneur in plenty of detail in this chat. Cole has written two books and is in the process of finishing his third book, The Solo Pro, which is all about how to make money meaningfully and freedomfully as a solopreneur. Cole is also a speaker, and when you hear the energy Cole brings to this chat, you'll quickly understand why organizations tap him on the shoulder to present to their employees and their clients. Cole has been described as a cross between Yoda and the Energizer Bunny. What they mean, of course, is Cole combines insight with energy, wisdom with enthusiasm, and ideas with action. I had the pleasure of chatting with Cole three years ago as part of our global event, Impactology Live. We've also adapted the original chat with Cole into a podcast episode, and it's a valuable companion to this episode. Check that out as well. We've got links to the video interview for this conversation, the original chat in the bio. In this interview, Cole shares his story and some timely insights about diversity and creativity, commitment, finding your way, and other life lessons. Stay tuned at the end of this episode, where I'll share some reflections, questions, and tips that will get you thinking and get you taking action faster. This is Cole Fink. This is the Impactology Podcast. Cole, welcome. How are you? G'day, George. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. And um, other than the fact that I have a bit of a cough handed to me by my four-year-old, I'm, I'm absolutely great. <laughs> well, four-year-olds love giving us gifts that we don't expect from time to time. <laughs> it's a biscuit a stomach bug. They do that very well. Absolutely. <laughs> it's wonderful to catch up. And um, we had a similar kind of conversation about three years ago. So that's a very long time. And um, Cole, I, I really love your brand. I just want to sort of put that on the table up front. I really love your brand. I really love what you stand for. And if anyone jumps on your website, so colfink.com, um, a lot of the thought leadership and articles on there are really world-class. I want to just put that on the table because I've, um, I've been following your, your content and, and you for a number of years, uh, ever since we last spoke. And, um, yeah, just keep up the great work. I'm really enjoying it. And I'm certain, um, you know, everyone else that connects with your content gets a similar kind of uh, warm, fuzzy feeling in terms of, uh, you know, the value that they get out of it. Thanks, mate. I do love 
like the life of a solopreneur where you are not only the the primary source of value in your business but also the the marketer and the sales guy and everything else uh, one of the things i love about it is finding ways to do things that really fuel you and so like hopefully your reaction is born out of the fact that i actually really do like writing the articles and creating the videos and the content and whatever that goes out online uh to promote my business and it uh, it's I'm exploring topics that I find interesting and I'm uh, exploring them in ways that I find interesting. And so it actually doesn't feel to me like a, a, a cost or a great investment that I have to make to try and write this stuff. I'm doing it as much for my own uh, gratification as anyone else. And then I, it's interesting when you do it that way, it makes it more resonant often because uh, for the people for whom your perspective on life or the way you approach things resonates with them, then they find it really awesome to have found someone who's a, like a like-minded soul, I guess. Um, so thanks. I appreciate that. And if it's attracting people like you, I'm happy because um, you're a bloody good bloke and I love working with people like you. <laughs> Thank you. And I guess what you highlight there as well is, uh, and I don't mean this in absolute terms, but if you created the content and you had a great time creating it and you're learning something about yourself and you're coming across as authentic, even if, and I don't mean this in absolute terms, there was no one listening or watching at the other end ever, but somehow you're a better person for having that time to reflect, even if it's for your own benefit. 100%. And 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 that's what I get, you know, that's the kind of um, sort of vibe that I get from your content. But so anyone who hasn't heard your name before, who is Colfink? What drives you, and, and what are you known for? Uh, well, hopefully, I'm known for helping professionals be profitable because that's a little tagline I write on my website. Um, I'm probably best well known as a, a mentor and a guide for solopreneurs, solo pros, I call them. Um, I'm also pretty well known as a public speaking coach and as an expert in designing engaging communities, whether those communities be like an internal staff community or whether the community is more the clients of your business. Um, So I'm the author of two books. I've written Speakership with Matt Church and Sasha Coburn, which is a book about uh, essentially leading from stage um, and, and using public speaking to, to, to grow as a person, number one, I think public speaking is the ultimate personal growth development vehicle, um, but also to lead companies and lead teams and everything else or lead commercial outcomes as a public speaker. I've written a book called Tribe of Learning, uh, which is about how if you place people in environments where they're constantly uh, learning and growing personally, you create deeply engaged communities. And so if you wanna have deeply engaged staff or you wanna have deeply engaged clients and customers, I reckon what you wanna do is create an environment where they get to come together as a community uh, where they're learning and growing personally. Um, And there's a bit of an art and a science to that. And so I've got a book about that. And then right now, George, as we speak, I mean, not like right now as we speak, but, you know, I wrote some last night and I'll write some again tonight. I'm writing my third book, which is called The Solo Pro. Uh, and it's all about how to make money meaningfully and freedomfully. Uh, so I think that the modern world provides individuals with like a crazy opportunity to run a fabulously commercially successful business or so a really profitable business. 
but in a way which is really meaningful and really freedomful. And so um, I think that the corporate world for a lot of people has become quite meaningless in many cases and quite freedomless in many cases. And I just think that's a gross misuse of the opportunity that the modern world has created. Like I saw a graph a while ago that said worker um, productivity has increased by 12 times over since, you know, 1850 or whatever the date was. Well, why aren't we 12 times as free? Like, why aren't we 12 times as happy? Like, this is nuts. If anything, a lot of people are less free now than they were in the 1850s. And I'm like, I'm not raging against capitalism. I recognize that uh, we are all incredibly well off and incredibly privileged. But what I want to do now is encourage people to exercise that privilege in a way that is deeply meaningful for their lives. And I'm sick of business coaches and business courses just being about making money. Um, I want to be surrounded by people who are interested in making money, but in doing so in a way that's truly meaningful for them and for the people that they're with, uh, and also freedomful. And so that we all get to, to spend our time on this earth doing things more than just making a buck. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm driven, like you, you, the, the part of your question was, what drives you? I'm driven to lead a meaningful and freedomful life and to help others for whom that idea resonates to do the same. That's, that's what I want to do with my time here. Freedomful. You've touched on some really important topics there that I'd love to explore in a bit more detail, particularly around sustainability and uh, building that sense of community and freedomful, which you mentioned, and purpose as well, and meaning. Um, before we jump into some of those uh, topics, I want to... We spoke three years ago, and it was in it was right in the heart of the pandemic. Yeah, and our world at that stage, we were just trying to find a way to make the most of what was a really difficult situation. And we don't need to go back there, but so much has shifted. Um, so much personal growth for individuals as well. And um, when you're looking back, what are the three accomplishments? from that period that you look back now that you're most proud of? Um, <clears throat> I've actually had an awesome time over the last three years. Um, I actually, I mean, obviously I don't celebrate the fact that a lot of the world went politically quite dysfunctional and obviously that loads of people have been horrendously affected. Uh, but from a purely selfish sense, um, I had an absolutely great time during the pandemic. Um, and I found lockdown strangely, and again, this is speaking to enormous privilege, but I live outside of the city on a relatively large property. And so that period where none of us were really allowed to go out and do anything, funnily enough, came at the perfect time for me because we'd just moved onto this 27 acre property and we sort of wanted to be in the nesting phase anyway. So the, the pandemic was, I was really incredibly blessed. But the greatest accomplishment I would say over the last three years is definitely that if I imagine myself like on my deathbed, right, looking back at my life, I'll look back on the three years since you and I last publicly spoke, knowing that I spent them exactly how I wanted to spend them, which is predominantly with my kids. So I've got a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a five-month-old. 
And over the last three years, I've spent an absolutely incredible amount of time with these three little humans. And I've had the pleasure of witnessing their growth and meeting them as people as they become more and more whoever they are going to become. And I, I have this, I have, so I'm 44 years old, right? And I spent a lot of my life up to the age of probably maybe 35 or so planning and preparing for my perfect life. Like I'm one of those, uh, I've heard people either spend most of their time either depressed about the past or anxious about the future. <laughs> I'm, I'm the anxious about the future type. I spend my whole life in the future. Um, or that was my default. I'm training myself out of it. And I spent a lot of my life just planning and preparing for some perfect life that would appear in some future indeterminate amount of time. And in the last, yeah, I don't know, maybe eight years, maybe only five years, something like that. But I realized that whatever's happening now just is forever. Like I, one of the things was I read um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, who, um, yeah. I mean, Eckhart Tolle is both a genius and totally insane. The way, <laughs> the way I read him is a bit of a cynic. But the idea that there is only the present and the present is the only place that anything ever happens, that particular idea, which is kind of the core the central idea of that book really found a home in me. And I realized that I didn't want to spend my whole life preparing for the future. That at some yeah. point I had to live my life the way I wanted to live it. And I'm grateful that I managed to do that before the pandemic kicked off, which meant that I've spent the last three years living in a way right here and now that is completely mm. congruent with and in alignment with how I want to live my life rather than spending it preparing for that happening in future. Um, so that is my number one accomplishment. And I hope to continue to accomplish that every day for the rest of my life is the plan. Um, in that time, I also wrote Tribe of Learning and published that book and got that out into the world. That was cool. I'm proud of that. Um, I've almost finished writing the solo pro, which is cool. I'm proud of that. Uh, but actually, I actually, uh, my two year old, I delivered her on the bathroom floor myself. <laughs> Um, which was not the plan, but we live a long way from the hospital and we were not going to get there in time. So I delivered a two-year-old. Uh, well, she's two now, but I delivered a baby on my bathroom floor. Um, my wife is amazing and she she just totally thrived in, in that experience. It was just us in the bathroom. It was amazing. Um, and I reckon in the last three years, I've changed more nappies than 99.99% of all the men in the world. And I'm extremely proud of that. <laughs> now, how were you during that situation? Um, you mentioned that your, that your wife was really calm and in the moment. How about yourself? How were you going in that moment? It was, um, it's interesting. I would never have signed up to do it. Like if you'd said, do you want to deliver your own kid? I would have been like, heck no, like not a chance. And if you ask me, do you want to do it again? I'd again say, no, we like we had our third child after that and he got born in a normal hospital and we just went a lot earlier. But I'm actually super grateful for the experience and it was really, it was, it was great. And um, so we actually live with my wife. Uh, my wife and I live with her brother and his partner and their child. Um, and we, we have a house set up so that lots of other people can come and stay. Um, so I don't know, the best thing I could describe it as is a hippie commune, um, but we're not really hippies. Um, but we live in a very communal environment. Anyway, so my, my brother-in-law, he heard a bit of a commotion 
And he he had the perfect amount of wherewithal to realize that I needed help, but we didn't really want him in the room. And so he stood outside the bathroom door and he rang his parents and his brother, who are all doctors, and his brother's wife is also a doctor. So we had this army of doctors on call. And my brother-in-law, Ben, was just standing outside the bathroom door. And every couple of minutes, he'd like send me a bit of information like, hey, Cole, you might want to check this. Hey, Cole, you might want to do that. But it was perfect because it meant that I could be, I knew that someone had my back and was like covering the the, the technical and the like the dangers <laughs> and whatever. And all I had to do was be there and present with Mish and like coach her and encourage her through the process. And anytime I needed to know something, Ben's voice would just like magically appear in the room being like, hey, Cole, you got to do this. And so we smashed it, dude. Like we gave birth to a kid in our bathroom and everyone was healthy and awesome. And the ambulance rocked up 45 minutes later and I've already done the umbilical cord and that's all sorted. And my wife stood up and walked out of the house. <laughs> it was wild. You know, I, I thought you were going to say that when he called up, um, when he called up the family that he was, um, got into commentary mode and started commentating. <laughs> <laughs> and they're on the home straight. She's got her head coming out and then, no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> oh, he's cut that umbilical cord like he's done it before. <laughs> yeah, which I hadn't, but no, uh, it was, it was an amazing and a magical experience. And I totally understand why, why some people are like motivated to have that home birth. Like I understand that's a bit of a thing now. And I, I totally get it now and I understand and I didn't before. Um, but as I say, when we had the opportunity to, to have another kid, we were quite happy to book into a hospital and, uh, and go there earlier this time to make it slightly less stressful. <laughs> well, Cole, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned being present um, and the impact that that's had on you. Um, and I guess being in the present, um, what I've certainly found out in the last few years about being present is that it short circuits our ability to go too far into the future or look in a rearview mirror and try and make sense of what's already happened, which I think there's a place for that. But if we just look in the rearview mirror for a moment, though, um, growing up, who were your role models? Who were they? Who were they? And, um, and how did they shape you? Um, <clears throat> I mean, definitely my dad, which is like the most stereotypical answer on earth. Um, and I, in all honesty, I don't actually know really how he shaped me um, because he died when I was 19 and I'm now 44. So he's been gone longer than he was around for me, at least. And it's sad in a sense because he's kind of, at this point, he's a collection of memories rather than a, like a living, breathing kind of uh, person in my life. Um, but I know that he shaped me a lot just because of the way mum looks at me. <laughs> like I know my mum sees my dad in me, not just, and I don't really look like him that much, but it's the way that I talk. It's the way that I think it's the way that I act. Like I know I'm like my dad because just the way mum looks at me, I can just tell. Um, but I, I definitely got a bunch of things from him, like a really entrepreneurial spirit, like a willingness to take risks. Um, like there's a whole bunch of things about me that you could say that just probably came from my dad. So he'd be one, but it's interesting. Like you go, who are my role models? I remember when I was a teenager, I was one of those kids who doodled a lot in the margins of textbooks and that kind of stuff. Like I was constantly drawing things and, and I remember, um, 
I had this thing that I used to like draw almost like graffiti, not that I was ever into graffiti, but I like to do words like that, how the graffiti artists do, where you kind of write little mottos and whatever. And one of the ones I wrote was no heroes. I wrote that thousands of times. I wrote no heroes. And the idea wasn't that I didn't want to, um, it wasn't that I was rejecting the idea of, of finding other people impressive or inspiring or anything else, but it was more that I wanted to recognize that absolutely everybody was fallible and that I didn't want to kind of elevate anyone to an unrealistic pedestal, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I wanted to, it was, yeah, it was, I don't, I don't know, like an epiphany I had as a 15 year old that I wanted to admire the positive traits about people without like worshiping the person. Um, but so like, I loved Douglas Adams writing, <laughs> um, or I loved Chris Cornell. I don't know if you were into grunge in the nineties, but Soundgarden, Chris Cornell's oh, presence was just, he was amazing. But even like my older brother, Cam, his intellect was definitely something that like I wanted to role model and I talk like Cam to this day because of his influence or my best friend Ben at high school he just had the most incredible sense of humor and playfulness and to this day I'm still just a bit of a wanker <laughs> and, and it's it's definitely because of him because he's so playful and so hilarious and I just really admired that and kind of absorbed that into my sense of being so uh, yeah, I've never really been into hero worship and definitely not of famous people. Um, and so, like, in terms of the people who were my role models and how they shaped me, I, I, there's almost not a famous name I could say that would have it. They were almost all people from my personal circles. Um, but so it's essentially I was looking for the traits that I felt like people, um, em like, yeah, that people embodied or, or demonstrated really well. And I wanted to allow myself to be a bit of a sponge. And um, so, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully everyone who's had some little positive impact on me in my life is now in some way that's reflected back out in the way that I act with other people. And I think that makes perfect sense. I, I guess the more sort of um, the hero worshipping is it's probably just more admiring what they achieve rather than actually being role models because let's face it, if we, you know, if we, we pick someone that we know that's in the public eye, we don't know what they're like in, in, in private. You know, they... Totally. they Complete, they might be complete knobs in private. We just don't know. So, um, <laughs> but what they might achieve professionally, you might look at that and say, that's fantastic. I love the way they went about it and, and, and be able to draw motivation from that. In your childhood, though, you, you worked as a professional actor and a musician, and you then went on to study mechanical engineering and you did your master's in data and analytics uh, and marketing. How do you feel this, let's face it, a diverse mix of passions? How <laughs> has it shaped your perspective on work today? Yeah. <clears throat> I often say of my resume that it's um, chaotic. <laughs> Uh, is the truth. So I'm, yeah, using diversity. That was, that was a nice uh, euphemism for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. You framed it well. Uh, yeah, I've tried a lot of different things in my life is the truth and not all of it's worked. Um, and I reckon diversity is essentially the foundation of creativity. So I love, and I have no idea where I first saw this idea, unfortunately, but I love the idea that 
that new ideas appear at the intersection of two or more existing ideas. So I've got a really pragmatic example, which is um, present in my daily life at the moment. You're familiar with the concept of balance bikes? Balance bikes. So a balance bike is what all the kids use to learn to ride bikes now today, right? So like back when oh, you and I were kids. To push along and drive. Right. So there's no pedals, right? So it's yeah. just a bike, right. sands, pedals. That's it. Um, and yep. so both my my two-year-old and my four-year-old can both just pump around on a balanced bike like with unbelievable levels of skill and my four-year-old can now ride a pedal bike and he's never crashed he's never been out of control and it's because balanced bikes are just a vastly superior way of learning how to ride a bike you learn to balance first and then you add the pedals and the brakes it just makes so much more sense well balanced bikes like we should have invented them a hundred years ago a, a balanced bike is literally just a bike without the pedals on it. <laughs> and yet nobody thought of it until the push scooter was invented, right? Because a push scooter is sort of like a bike. Now you stand on it, but you're holding a set of handlebars and you use your feet for locomotion and for brakes, right? And so once we had pedal bikes and the push scooter, there was this idea that appeared at the intersection where people are like, wait, what if we made a bike that you sit on like a normal bike, but you do the, 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 the pushing and the braking with your feet like a scooter, balanced bike, like literally life, well, not life changing, but world changing invention, right? And it only came about because there were these two existing ideas that could intersect. Now, interestingly, if you look at the push scooter, that's an intersection of a bike and a skateboard, <laughs> right? And so, I reckon you can follow every idea back and back and back and back and back. It's always an intersection of two or more existing ideas, like accumulates together and I don't know, something magical and fizzy happens and a new idea pops out of it. And so I think if there's a benefit to my chaotic or in your words, diverse <laughs> history and resume, it's the fact that I have a bunch of different ideas coming from really different fields of inquiry from, as you say, like acting and music through to engineering, like across the spectrum of, of human possibility, those are fairly far apart. Um, and I think, yeah, the more diverse the range of experience we can have, then the more diverse and uh, broad the possibility of crea creativity is because the intersections of ideas are kind of exponentially increased. Um, and so when people say diversity is our strength, I don't think that's a buzzword or a catchphrase. I think that's the truth. If you yeah. get more people in a room with more diverse uh, backgrounds and experiences and ideas and insights and whatever, when you intersect those perspectives and those ideas, that's where creativity comes from. Um, and so, yeah, I guess there was a period in my life where I was like, oh, no, you know, should I have picked a track and stayed in it? Um, but now at this point in my life, I'm incredibly grateful for all the random stuff that I've done um, because I think it contributes to who I am today. Yeah, and that, that intersection of ideas where you've got you know, the buzzword of diversity of thinking, but it, it's true, the, the kind of conversation, if you've got a problem statement on the table and you've got people around the room that have all got um, come with different strengths and different perspectives and different expertise, the problem is going to be solved in a completely different way to getting individuals that are probably all of one mould or one discipline. 100%. 100%. Yeah. If you've got a bunch of 50-year-old white dudes with MBAs from the same university, 
I don't know how you can imagine they're going to think of anything other than the types of things that 50-year-old white dudes with MBAs from that university think of. Now, it's good to have a couple of those guys in the room because their expertise is definitely relevant and useful. And you want to intersect it with a bunch of other possibilities and perspectives to see what comes out because homogeneity is not evolutionarily fit. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if everything's the same, you are one minor catastrophe away from extinct. Uh, and so diversity is a strength in the world of ideas as it is in the world of genetics, basically. And we've got to be, we've got to be in the right, the right moment for that to actually, so the, those intersection of ideas are what I call like a collision of atoms that releases energy. So sometimes the energy is a lot and sometimes the energy is a little bit. But either way, whether it's, big energy or small energy, it's energy, and it's going to progress the idea. And, and that's what I love, what you're talking about there and um, in terms of that diversity of experience as well. I, I started off in the film industry. Yeah, right. I used, to, I used to watch movies for a living. I mean, that was what I did. And um, I completely agree. There, there are skills that I – so straight out of uni, I went into the um, cinema slash film industry and worked in that for close to 10 years. And it's funny that it's funny the way I problem solve and the way I think uh, was actually um, the the problem solving was actually generated back then in terms of the yeah. kind of work I was doing. And I used to grab that and just build on that, and then grab that and build on that. So I really love the idea of um, I guess your sort of diversity of skills as well. Yeah. Now I'm going to go one step further as well. You. I, I love go-karting and motor racing, by the way, and you, you, spent, <laughs> yeah. you, you spent many years in the go-karting game. Um, how did you land in this world of speed and adrenaline? Yeah, okay. So firstly, let me quickly clarify, because most people's experience of go-karts is they go to the local indoor place and they pay their $100 or whatever, and you drive around in a very slow, very underpowered, very poorly tuned heap of crap. Right, this is not what we're talking about. There's a cottage industry of go-kart racing, which is people spending inordinately large sums of money to drive small but incredibly highly tuned and very powerful machines at ludicrously high speeds around custom-built tracks, which this is the world that I was in. Uh, and I got into it by pure luck, honestly. Uh, so at the time, I was a young um, engineering student at university and I was selling computer-aided design software. So I actually, um, at the time that I, so this is like the uh, early 2000s, three-dimensional computer-aided design was just becoming a thing. Uh, it was a really exciting period. Uh, and so I was kind of getting it on the ground floor of it, and it meant that none of the old dogs kind of knew the field because it was a brand new field. So the fact that I was 21 years old and like, and I looked about 12, <laughs> But it didn't work against me because it was such a new field that there was no sort of established knowledge. So I turned into quite a good sales engineer for this CAD software. Anyway, one of the clients that the sales manager took me to was Australia's largest go-kart manufacturer. And I went to their factory. They showed me what they did. I opened up the computer. I put on the piece of software. I showed it how I could potentially improve their um, processes and whatever, and they bought it. And... Then I started doing training there and then, you know, you know how these things happen. Just the snowball went on 
And some years later, I'm running my own go-kart manufacturing business. I've got a factory with eight employees and we're pumping out several million dollars worth of machines every year. And it's a tawdry story. I was, <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons, let's put it that way, because we were turning over a lot of money and I made none. But anyway, um, it's interesting now, I've withdrawn completely from the motor racing world, but if I happen to flick on the TV and I see you know, V8 supercars or whatever, the entire V8 supercars grid is people who in my mind are 12 to 15 year old children because <laughs> that's and so like Chaz Mostert and Cam Waters and all these guys like they were all just kids when I knew them racing go-karts um and my claim to fame is that I had a very small influence on Daniel Ricciardo learning how to drive so there you go I'm not going to leave that there just as expand on that so well so everyone in Formula One literally Literally every single person in Formula One starts their career as a seven-year-old racing go-karts. Um, and like every single person on the grid. So Oscar Piastri, who's now Australia's kind of big famous kart driver, he was after my time, but he learned to drive at Oakley Go-Kart Racing Club, which is like 20 kilometers that way. Um, and Daniel Ricciardo was actually from Perth, but not like it's a very small industry. Everyone knows everyone. Um, and so there are a few events where I was helping him. Um, so I don't think he'd even remember me, to be honest. So let's not overstate my importance here. No, no. Just a nice little nugget to throw out there when people are into F1. <laughs> yeah, and it is a um, – and you're right in terms of the life lessons as well from go-karting. And, um, yeah, and, and it's, it's one of those industries you, you look at – I put it in the same category as boxing and MMA in terms of go-karting. Yeah. It, it's, they're the kind of sports that – from the outside looking in, it looks really easy, but the training is brutal, but there's a fine line between dying and getting really silly and you <laughs> how to prepare yourself mentally and emotionally, and, it, and it's really difficult. But, um, yeah, I, I got, so much, um, got so much time for motor racing. and, and what It is cool. Are, it's phenomenal. Yeah, as, a technical, cool. as a technical problem to solve like that side that mathematical analytical side of my brain loved it like it was yeah it was really fun but the the whole picture turned out not to be for me but that's fine i still appreciate the the pure aspects of the sport for sure Let, let's um let's fast forward to the work that you do at the moment with solo pros yeah and you've been successfully supporting the growth of solo pros for many years I'm keen to explore this and particularly um, your path moving forward. But first, um, we've spoken about Solo Pro, maybe just a, a bit of a definition in terms of when people hear that word, what, what's, the, what's the definition that you'd like to share? Yeah, cool. I think that that's a really useful question because in my experience, the vast majority of people who are solopreneurs, if you wanted to be really strict about the definition, they're kind of not one. <laughs> So I think of myself as a solopreneur, right? And I'm writing a book called The Solo Pro. I have a full-time assistant. So if you want to be strict about the definition, well, it's not a solo business. There's another dude who works in it full-time. Uh, however, I do still think it's a useful definition. And I think of it this way. If you have a business where your actions are the primary source of value generation, then I consider you a solopreneur, right? So an intrapreneur, which is not an oftenly used term, but some people use it, an intrapreneur joins the business, 
right? An entrepreneur will go and join an existing business and try and make their magic that way. An entrepreneur starts the business, right? So they found it and maybe they seek investment or whatever, but they're going to found a business, but it's very explicitly about bringing in people and creating systems and processes and whatever. A solopreneur is the business. And so whilst Gino is my full-time assistant, I am the business. The business is called coldfink.com, basically. If I'm sick, Gino is not going to host the training session. If I, if this cough that I've got, which has held up pretty well, I might mention, but if this cough that I've got was worth, worse, we would have had to reschedule this. Gino wasn't going to come and do the podcast interview because I'm the business, so I'm a solo pro. And so almost every solopreneur is going to have a team that they use, whether it's an assistant, whether they have, you know, someone they turn to to do their design or their IT or, you know, marketing help or whatever it is. Sure, there's going to be a bunch of people around you that you turn to, but I think that there is a large and growing group of people for whom their business really is an extension of them. And what I love about it is uh, when you recognize that you're a solopreneur and you kind of commit to that path, then you can stop taking good, bad advice (laughs) or bad, good advice, meaning like the traditional business world is all about scale, for example. I don't want to scale. If I scale, I'd have to stop doing the work and start managing other people to do the work. I love my work. I don't want to scale. I want to create impact. But I have no interest in scale. And every time someone starts talking about, here's how you scale this or scale that, because I know I'm a solopreneur rather than an entrepreneur, I immediately know, oh, cool, I can stop listening to you. You're talking to someone else. So I think it's a really useful distinction because I think most entrepreneurs fail, right? Um, the entrepreneurs you read about in the paper, they're the ones who are um, examples of survivorship bias. The vast majority of entrepreneurs start businesses that end up dying pretty quickly. I don't think that's true for solopreneurs. The vast majority of solopreneurs who start a solo business succeed in creating a solo business that becomes sustaining for them. And so I love, I love it when someone realizes, hey, I'm a solopreneur. I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't take advice for entrepreneurs. I do things that help me to run a really successful solo business. And to me, that is a business that makes money in a way that gives you meaning and freedom. And if you're making good money, money that makes you happy in a way that it it feels meaningful to you and gives you the freedom that you want, then I reckon you're winning and you can ignore all the other advice. (laughs) And how's, how's your philosophy around solo pros evolved in the last three years? Um, I think, so number one, I think the, a lot more people have started to take this path, consider it a really serious option. Like you look at the statistics, the the engagement in traditional corporate settings right now is diabolically low. Like people are not enjoying their jobs. And the pandemic, I think, honestly, was an illustration of how many jobs really are meaningless drivel. Uh, kind of, like it's, the modern business landscape is a bit weird. And the pandemic, I think, catalyzed a period of change, which we are now right in the depths of, right? And so I think what's changed in the last three years 
is a whole bunch of people are waking up to the fact that there are other ways of doing things, that the status quo we'd created is not the only way that we could successfully function in a, corp in a commercial setting. And that in fact, uh, if you are willing to kind of take full responsibility for your own uh, commercial health, if that makes sense, uh, and you're willing to push yourself and to grow in ways and to try things that might be uncomfortable, but that there is a crazy amount of opportunity out there for people to run solo businesses because the world's changing, I think, faster than it's ever changed before, right? Technology is causing the world to change more quickly than it ever has before. And the fundamental advantage that a solo business has over a more traditional kind of corporate structure is responsiveness and adaptability. When the world changes, a solopreneur can have a new offering out to the market in literally hours or days, right? Traditional businesses, there's weeks of red tape at the minimum to go along with the whole process of innovation and decision-making and whatever else. And they'll be lucky if they've pumped something out in three months, six months, or a year, right? But if the world's changing ever faster, then that means solopreneurs are getting ever more, like our, com our competitive advantage is becoming ever more advantageous, if that makes sense. And so I think, there's now this large cohort of people who are saying, we're starting to realize, shit, you know, maybe working in a corporate environment is not providing me with the, the greatest amount of autonomy and agency that I could possibly have. Um, and I'm seeing more and more people running solo businesses to succeeding, maybe I'll give it a go. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited by it. And I know I personally will never work in a traditional business structure again. Running a business um, taught me that that's not my strength. I'm not good at people management. I'm not good at administration. And I now run a business where I don't do any people management and I don't do any administration. And I am as flawed a human being as anyone else. Um, but my business is deliberately designed around, around what I'm good at rather than what I'm not good at. Um, and as a result, uh, every day I just wake up happy to, to do my work, uh, excited to do my work and, um, as I say, live a meaningful and freedomful life and I just want other people to do the same, which is uh, the inspiration for the book. Yeah, and, and this, I know I've worked with many individuals in corporate who would make brilliant solo pros genuinely. They're just fantastic at what they do. But there is this, you know, there is this, big jump from it's a scary jump which is i've got regular monthly income i know what i'm getting compared to being able to take that leap so for anyone anyone that's um listening to this that's thought about it what kind of advice would you provide them in terms of you know that thoughts run through their head a few times and they're at that point i'm either going to do it or not do it yeah, totally. Um, so the first thing I'd say is I reckon there's a myth around the security of a traditional paid position. Um, and this was illustrated to me really well by uh, this guy I met at a networking event. I can't even remember his name, but he's a bit of an old timer. He was probably 70 to 75 years old. And he was one of those fellas that just knew how to tell a story. He was so engaging. I just spent half an hour at least just listening to him talk. It was wonderful. Anyway. I had mentioned this idea of solopreneurialism to me and he said, uh, he told me a story of, uh, he was an accountant and he told a story of graduating uh, university um, and you know passing all the qualifications and becoming a CPA and him and three or four of his mates did it at the same time. 
And then they went off into various different businesses and some of them got employed by big firms and um, a couple of them created their own smaller firms. And, and I can't remember which financial calamity it was, but then, you know, the crash happened, right? Well, the two guys who ran their own firms, their revenue dropped by 50%, which is obviously a pretty significant hit, right? Well, the two guys who were employed by big firms, they lost their jobs completely. So their revenue dropped by 100%. The idea that being in a big organisation makes you safe is absolutely a myth. And you only have to look at the way that sociopathic CEOs ditch tens of thousands of people with the stroke of a pen the moment the financial winds change very slightly. Like the idea that you're secure in a big job is absolute bullshit, I reckon. What you're actually saying is, I'm going to abdicate responsibility for my financial security to someone else and hope they do a better job of it than I would. Mm. Well, I just think that's dumb. (laughs) Right now, obviously, there are ways to make yourself more secure in a corporate role, right? Be really good at what you do, be indispensable to the business, whatever. Like you absolutely can make corporate roles secure. But the idea that you're on the payroll, therefore you're safe, that's a myth. What I would say is, uh, if you trust yourself and believe in yourself, uh, working for yourself is by far the most secure way to earn yourself a living than any other. So that aside, if someone is in corporate and thinking about the shift, I reckon the number one kind of strategy or like test to apply in order to see whether this might work for you is to see whether you can get any attention. Attention is vastly more scarce than money is. And if you can attract a lot of attention, then you're 80% of the way there. And getting a little bit of money on the far side of that attention is actually kind of easy. And so for the people who you're describing, who've got this monthly paycheck coming in, they've probably got a mortgage and responsibilities to spouse and children or, you know, whatever else. We've all got stuff that we have to pay for and very few people have a a nest egg big enough where you can just quit and hope that this works within the next year or so. If that's you, then what you want to do is start acting like you're running your own business and start the act of promoting yourself and your ideas and the value that you think you might be able to offer to the world Right? So that's the problems that you might be able to help people solve or the aspirations that you might be able to help move them towards. Just start making a noise and see if you can get some attention. If people start ringing you and saying, hey, George, can I pick your brain? Quit your job and start. <laughs> the moment they ring you and say, can I pick your brain? You're, you're good to go. You've got enough attention. It's resonating with the problems that they're experiencing and the aspirations that they have. When people ring you and say, can I pick your brain? You've got a business. You're just not charging for it yet. And all you've got, everything now is just like details. Work out what your packages look like. Work out how they're priced. Get yourself, you know, any way to receive funds and start making offers to people. But put yourself out there, make a bit of noise, see if you can get a bit of attention. When people start saying, can I pick your brain, go. Beautiful. And I guess making that leap as well, Cole, um, running a solo pro practice involves more than just mastering your craft. Um, And there's just so many other parts that, that make up your world to be successful as well. So how do you encourage 
solo pros to take a more well-rounded approach to their development. And I guess from that perspective, what what key areas should solo pros focus on to ensure that their business not only thrives but is sustainable as well? So, I, so uh, I'm writing a book called The Solo Pro, and in it is a five-step thing called The Solo Process. <laughs> Right, and it's basically my distillation of what I believe the there are five things that I reckon you need to do well in your business. Right, they are prepare, promote, propose, provide, and prod. You can see that I was kind of into the pro thing at the time, but if basically you got to get yourself prepared, and that just means you got to know your stuff. Right, you got to have something of value to give to the world, and if you don't have something of value to give to the world yet, well then do the work. <laughs> Once you've done that, you need to promote yourself which is essentially the advice I was giving to the previous question. Like, get out there, make a noise, can you get some attention? Then you've got to have some effective way of proposing to do the work with people, right? So if promotion is marketing, then propose is sales. Uh, can you enter into a conversation with someone where you go, cool, sounds like you've got these problems and these aspirations. I think that we could solve those problems and move towards those goals. If we did this work together, it would cost this much. Do you want to do it? So some way of getting into commercial relationships with people. You've got to provide value, obviously. So you need some way of delivering your work that lights people up. And then uh, you've got to, what you want to do is turn your clients or your customers into advocates. Right, so people who refer you on to others. And I somewhat summit somewhat tongue in cheek, I call this prodding. <laughs> you literally just prod them. Hey George, do you know anyone else this would be good for? And it's deliberately sort of a silly little word because honestly, doing it well is remarkably easy. You just have to actually do it, right? So it's deliberately a bit tongue in cheek. So there's this five steps, and I reckon if you do those five things well, right? So have something of value, market it somewhat effectively, sell it reasonably well deliver it really well, and then get people to refer you on to others. If you do those five things well, it doesn't matter how much you suck at everything else, I think you can make a business that works. Now, the key, and this to me is maybe the best piece of advice. I think this might be the most important thing I know for people who want to run a solo business. The truth is you do need to do those five things well. If, if any of them drop to zero, your business doesn't exist. You don't make any money. You've got to do those five things well. However, you don't have to do any of them a specific way. You don't have to do marketing the way this social media maven tells you to do it. You don't have to do sales the way this 80s sales expert tells you to do it. You don't have to deliver value the way this trainer tells you to do it. You just have to find a way to promote yourself. You just have to find a way to propose your work to others. You just have to find a way to provide value, but you've got to find your way of doing it. Each, it's, got, it's your job to find a way of doing each of these things that resonates for you because if you can make each of the five steps energy positive for you or at the very bare minimum energy neutral, right? But if you can make it so that to prepare or promote or propose or provide or prod gives you a little bit of energy, is an energy positive experience for you. Do you get that you've built essentially a commercial perpetual motion machine? Because if promoting your own work gives you a bit of energy, well, then you've got more energy now to do something else with it. You might as well promote yourself a bit more and now you get a bit more energy. If you find ways to do each of these steps in a way that's energy positive for you, you never slow down. You never wear out. You're never burnt out. And so 
the the number one thing that I really hope people don't do is feel like, oh, if I'm going to run my solo business, I have to do social media this way. No. I know people banking half a million in net profit a year or more who don't do social media at all. Or you might have been told you have to get really good at public speaking. No. I know people who bank half a million or more in net profit who have never done a speech in their life. You might hear that you have to do this or you have to do that or you have to do whatever. I guarantee you I know someone who does crazy numbers who doesn't do the thing that you've just been told you have to do. What that person does do is they've found their way of solving the problem in a way that's energy positive for them so that they've got their own little commercial petrol, perpetual motion machine. Um, so, yeah. You, you've, you've bust some myths here around the idea of being a successful, sustainable solo pro. Really have, particularly around that social media part as well where you get a lot of individuals and they'll say, I'm not going to get on social media and put my face there. So you've obviously sort of bust that myth. I'm keen to understand, you spoke about that five-step process. How, how do you fit into that process? How do you, how do you guide these solo pros through that process and, and help them be sustainable and help them overcome those, overcome those challenges as they start out and as they start going down the track? Um. <clears throat> I mean, I do all the obvious things. So like I'm a mentor slash coach. Uh, I do training. I run workshops. I have a program. Um, it's launching on February the 16th, if anyone's keen, um, to do all this stuff. And honestly, I think the most important thing that I do is just encourage people, to be perfectly honest. Like I genuinely believe that people are absolutely incredible amazing things and that if they that if that if people believed in themselves to the degree to which i think they should they almost certainly wouldn't fail <laughs> um and so i see myself as a professional encourager I, I remember my oldest brother once asked me he looked at my business and he goes to me cole what do you actually do <laughs> and i was like in all honesty mike i tell smart capable adults that they can do it and i encourage them um and critically and like i'm a you probably i mean i you already knew this george but anyone listening has probably gathered i'm a very enthusiastic and encouraging person like i can be quite effusive and whatever and i think what's really important as well is i am never ever ever dishonest so if i think someone isn't prepared to go and do the thing that they think they want to do or that the strategy they're, they're super excited about implementing is definitely not going to work because I've seen it happen this way or that way or whatever. I'm never, ever dishonest with people. And so where there are hard truths that need to be heard, I'll deliver them. But largely what I'm trying to do is encourage and guide people to experiment with themselves and their strategies as much as they possibly can to find the stuff that resonates with their audience and which works for them personally. Because when you tick those two things off, you've got a kick-ass business that is a joy to run and you've bought yourself total freedom. I, I love the idea of finding the small wins to keep you motivated and moving forward. And, and, and it's just... It's so true when you're when you're doing great work and you've had a win and you've impacted an individual or a business, all of a sudden you, you, your chest is puffed out a bit more and you've got a bit more sort of energy and 
And sometimes it could be just as simple as one interaction where someone passes on some feedback. And we tend to underestimate the value of that, that feedback, both big and small, impacting someone in a really small but meaningful way and impacting a, a team of individuals with the work that you do. Yeah. Um, you spoke about marketing, and I, I just want to just go just a little bit deeper around that. Um, and I know you mentioned individuals don't, um, you know, you've got some individuals that may not do any um, social media. Yeah. I'm keen to just explore the whole idea of um, gaining attention, um, marketing. So what are some of the common mistakes solo pros make around that gaining attention and marketing? I mean, the number one most common mistake is doing something that they were told to do, even though it's not resonating for them. So I hear loads and loads and loads of people, loads of people tell me, oh, I hate marketing. And my response to that is, no, you don't. You just don't like marketing that way, right? You just haven't found the way of marketing that you like doing. And so um, generally speaking, in this day and age, what we get told to do is run, you know, Facebook ads to landing pages to a click funnels style system, which like, unless you're deeply into that stuff, it's just soul destroying and nobody wants to do it. And so, but of course, the people who are kind of um, most prevalent in the marketing uh, sphere at the moment are the people who love that stuff. Right, because it is a super effective strategy for the people that love it. Um, but they are never going to, um, they're never going to do it on your behalf. I've never seen someone like successfully outsource the marketing and sales of their business to another company um, because anyone who's actually good at marketing and sales will be more profitable marketing and selling their own stuff. So by definition, why would they do yours? They just don't. So what you need to do is find a way to get attention that you are happy to do. And so it might be that you quite like doing um, little speeches to 10 people or like facilitating little round tables to 10 people. Okay, cool. Where do little table, round tables of 10 people come together? So like for people who sell to corporates, which is a huge percentage of the type of people that I help, they're often a corporate refugee who's selling back to the types of companies they used to work for, right? Super effective strategy can be offer to go and do lunch and learns and make them free, right? So can you go back and sit with 10 of the types of people who you used to work with on a day-to-day -day basis? So you're super comfortable talking to these people, you know their roles inside out. And you just go back and share your expertise with them 10 at a time around a table over lunch. Mm. That is a way to get attention. That is a way to help people solve their problems. That is a way to have them go, hey, can I pick your brain? Because remember, if they say, can I pick your brain? You've got a profitable business. Like. There's no online marketing expert who's telling you that that's a viable strategy, but I know people who absolutely crush this game and really their only thing they do is go to, um, go to um, organizations in tall towers in the city and do little lunch and learns for free, which are like the sowing the seeds of future programs and offerings that they could run for them. There's a billion little ways of marketing yourself that are like that. And your job is to find the ones that work for you and that give you energy. Um, and it can be public speaking, it can be social media, it can be one-on-one -on -one interactions. Like LinkedIn is a Rolodex of the entire professional world. You can, you can find the exact person who should be talking to you in 15 seconds. 
Now, you don't have to message them on LinkedIn because that almost never works. But now that you know who they are, you know what city they're in, you, that means you know what building they're in. That means you can just ring them, right? Or you can probably guess their email address. Like, there's so many ways that you can just reach out to people and be like, hey, this is what I do, and I would love to talk to you about it. Um, you just got to find the one that works for you. Again, busting myths around the notion of marketing uh, and I guess what you're mentioning here as well, Cole, is the you know, finding something that's bespoke to your style and, and what you do really well rather than getting people outside of their comfort zone in a way that makes them really uncomfortable and probably not at their best as well. Um, let's look to the future for solo pros. Um, what's the future for solo pros and, and done well, what do they have to look forward to? You've touched on some things, but... Where do you see this going in the next few years and why is it so attractive for, for good, smart people? So I touched on the idea that I reckon if large organisations um, and do you get that like large organisations keep getting larger? Do you know what I mean? Like the Apples and the Teslas and the whatever the world and the Amazons, like their market cap keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Their pool of resources keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and their monopolistic power keeps getting greater and greater and greater, right? Like it seems to me like the where businesses probably used to fit a bell curve in terms of scale, where there are a few really small businesses and there are a few really big businesses, but most of them collected in the middle. We're now retreating to the ends of that same graph where there is only going to be massive businesses or solo businesses. Mm. And the massive businesses have the advantage, of course, of resources and money. And so their competitive advantage is in being able to like deeply research things and, you know, create systems and structures and whatever to solve massive intractable problems. And as a solo pro, we're not very good at that. Like a, a solopreneur is not going to make a whole car effectively that can be sold. Like you need the resources of a car company and a billion dollars to put towards tooling and R&D to make a car that's going to sell. So that is a set of problems like personal transportation is a set of problems better suited to be solved by large organizations. I'm never going to encourage a solo pro to be like, hey, see if you can make a car. That would be a dumb idea. However, at the very opposite end of the spectrum, we've got solo businesses and their massive competitive advantage is not resources, but responsiveness. We can change overnight. You can, you can offer a new thing to market in six hours because you've got a website that you can edit yourself and what you're selling is your own insight and expertise and skills, right? And the world is changing crazy quickly, which means that responsiveness is more and more valuable. And so uh, I reckon that we have a massive opportunity to look forward to where, um, you know, I think something like 40 or 50% of the jobs that kids who are currently in high school are gonna be doing in their mid thirties haven't been invented yet. Like we don't even know what they are. Our ability to predict the future is enormously limited and the smaller your business, the more quickly you can create the future, the more quickly you can contribute to what the future is going to be. And so there are things that large organizations are not at all well equipped to do really well 
And that that's our playground. That's where we get to go to work and do whatever we want and to iterate quickly and to fail regularly and learn from those failures and try again over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, things like the large language model AI platforms and that sort of stuff, like there's a whole bunch of tools that allow you to automate and kind of bolster and build support around yourself. Like um, the amount that a single person is going to be able to achieve is going to continue to grow potentially exponentially over the next 10 to 20 years, I reckon. And so if you are able to kind of cultivate your own personal energy, um, focus your authentic self into some particular space or towards a particular market or towards a group of people who just need your help and your expertise. I genuinely believe the world's your playground and, um, and there's untold amounts of opportunity and money to be made by people who are willing to just step beyond that little barrier of fear that arises when we think, Oh shit, you know, can I really afford to quit my job? Um, and the people who, find the courage to do that, I think are going to be rewarded massively. And we're seeing it now. I know so many people who make crazy money running a little solo business that no one's ever heard of. It's crazy. And with these individuals that are quite successful on the topic of personal brand, um, I've got a great definition of personal brand, which is your personal brand walks into the room before you do. So I love that. I've, I've seen you say that before. I've, I've mentioned that to yeah. a few people. I really like it. And, um, and I think that speaks volumes of um, being present, which we spoke about early in our conversation and knowing your strengths um, and playing to those strengths as well. Um, when you, how do you guide people in crafting a compelling personal brand that will actually mean something for their audience? And maybe even if you've got a, a sort of a success story of someone, you don't need to mention names, but maybe someone who's created a, such a strong personal brand that their success, their success was guaranteed, if you could ever yeah. say that, based on that strong brand. Get, get, guaranteed is slightly too strong a word, but I, 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 I see where you're pointing out. I'll tell you what, I'll use the one person who won't mind me using his name because he's my brother and I know him well enough to know he won't mind. So my brother, Cam, Cam Fink. You can find him at camfink.com, obviously. Um, he is an event producer and a videographer. And over the pandemic, he became a like a video production coach, I guess. And so basically, he realized that, uh, you know, we're all stuck at home and we're all trying to get attention online or whatever. And he was like, video is so effective and most people absolutely suck at it. <laughs> so Cam developed this course, which is so incongruent. It's so congruent with the type of person that he is. He created a video, like a self video production course. It's literally about how to take selfies, selfie videos, holding a phone so that you can promote your stuff online. And it's called be less shit. <laughs> like it's literally called the be less shit camera course, right? And do you get that? There's not many people that could call a product be less shit. <laughs> But it is so congruent with who Cam is because he's not just a video trainer, right? He's not just going to tell you how to hold the camera and what settings to put it on and how to write a script or anything. He is a guy who helps you find a way to be at, at ease with who you really are while you're holding a camera. That's his actual job is help you be yourself, be authentic, be at ease when you're talking to a camera, which is a weird 
slightly alien environment that turns most of us into a like a wonky cardboard cutout of ourselves, right? And Cam does not take himself too seriously. <laughs> he never has, right? But what that means is you don't have to either. And so he's actually the perfect expert to teach you how to run, how to use a camera to create compelling little videos of yourself. And he would be, even if he didn't understand the technical side of the camera, like he, he actually realized as he was developed, as he was delivering the first cohort of the course, it's not really about the settings of the camera or the lighting or the anything else. It's really about, can you learn to be yourself while you're holding the camera? And because he's so good at being himself, and because he called his course be less shit, it attracted exactly the right type of people. And there's now, I don't know, several hundred people who've done his course and are now better at it. Equally, same guy, my brother. The other thing that he does is he does um, kind of event, a cross between event production and capture. So he'll come along and help you produce your event, but he'll also help you record the event. So if you're running an in-person conference or something like that, you want to capture the keynotes, you want to capture the audience's reactions and all sorts of stuff like that, Cam will do that. Now, the, the normal event production kind of tech crew, the stereotypical tech crew guy wears a black T-shirt, right? Cam wears a rainbow plastic cowboy hat. <laughs> because... He's not an event producer. He's a source of energy for the event itself. He's the polar opposite of the stereotypical black t-shirt camera operator guy who tries to blend into the background. Cam is part of the event. He actually makes your event better. The, the audience's reactions are more positive because Cam's there. So when he's filming them getting testimonials and whatever, they're better testimonials because the dude in the rainbow hat who's super easygoing and engaging and fun and funny and exciting and whatever and makes what me feel color. like a, what a better person I am, he's the one doing my interview. And so he comes away with these, you know, like a showreel from an event that just makes you wish you were there. And it's because the event was better because Cam was there. And the reason the event was better was Cam was there is because Cam's brand walked into the room before he got there. If someone hires Cam to produce their event, they're saying with the dude that walks around the place in a rainbow cowboy hat, they're saying, we want you to have fun. We want you to be yourself. We want, like, it's an expression of your intentions. And Cam's brand helps that, helps enable that. And there are very few people who'd suggest that if your market is conservative, large corporates running multi-million dollar events, there are very few people who'd tell you it would be a strategically good idea to wear a $2 rainbow cowboy hat that you bought at the reject shop. But that's what he wears and he makes much better money as a result. That's what personal brand is. It's about telling the world who you really are and realizing that magnets are as powerful at repelling as they are at attracting. And like the mathematics of magnets says you can never have a highly attractive magnet that is not equally and oppositely repelling out the other side, right? What most of us do is we're so afraid of repelling that we never attract. We become non-magnetic at all. We just become this inert block of rock sitting on the desk doing nothing. And Cam had the courage to go, fuck it. I'm going to be as attractive as possible. And I'm, that's equally going to repel some people. Like there are people who would never dream of paying to have the videographer come to an event dressed in a plastic cowboy hat from the reject shop. Good. Those people aren't who he wants.
He's a bit repellent as a result, but he's highly attractive. And that's what we've all got to do. Be willing to repel half the world's population because on the other side of the magnet, you're attracting the people that actually resonate with who you are and what you do way more effectively. Personal brand's about courage as much as it is about strategy. What a great story. And the old adage, if you try and be meaningful to everyone, you're not meaningful to anyone or along those lines where you're trying to be all things to all people. Um, And Cam, in that instance, his personal brand is so strong and the word of mouth, I suspect, would be so strong that all of a sudden that rainbow cowboy hat isn't even a consideration when you've got him there that you just know you're in safe hands when you've got someone like Cam there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to, just a final question before we've got some closing questions, Cole. Um, And it's something that, I hear so often around imposter syndrome. And we let's overlay that in the context of personal brand. And I saw a, a really impressive video that you created not too long ago um, that says, uh, with honesty, you buy permission to be yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. I was stacking wood, I think. <laughs> that's great. And it really got my attention because you were doing something that I wouldn't expect anyone to be talking about, um, yeah. doing something, but having a topic that's so not congruent with what you were doing. Um, so when you've got individuals that have that fear of being judged and whether it be public speaking or, you know, putting themselves out there in uncomfortable but necessary ways, but that's where you actually have the most growth. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for these individuals? Because everything that you've mentioned up to this point um, is inspiring and you think, yeah, it's generated a bit of sort of energy in there and that sounds like so doable. But yep. then there's that overpowering voice that goes, but not for you, buddy. Just stay with <laughs> oh, <where> totally. You are. <laughs> so what, what the advice do you have for those individuals that are hitting that roadblock of uh, yep. imposter so firstly, I would say imposter syndrome is self-awareness viewed from below the line. So imposter syndrome is what we feel when we recognize our own limitations and fallibility. And when you observe that awareness in anybody other than yourself, you almost universally view it as a positive character trait. We much prefer to surround ourselves with people who understand their own limitations and their own fallibilities than we do to surround ourselves with people who are like dramatically overconfident idiots, right? So you've taken what you, when I say you, I mean, you know, the listener or us as a culture, we've taken what is, when we view it in anybody else, in literally anybody else, in the 7,999,900,000, in any other person on earth, when you see that character trait, you go, that's a good thing. And when you see it in yourself, you call yourself a fraud. (laughs) So that's just a failure of logic. Imposter syndrome is self-awareness. And if you have imposter syndrome, congratulations, you're not an egotistical dickhead. Good. (laughs) So with that said, We owe a lot to our schooling, right? Especially our teachers. Those people deserve to be flooded with money and gifts and everything else, right? So we owe so much to our schooling. We should be incredible grateful for it. And the institution of modern schooling is far from perfect. 
And the worst part about school, I believe, for a solopreneur and maybe possibly for anyone, is that it taught absolutely every single one of us how to be elite at fitting in. So school is an environment perfectly crafted to teach absolutely everyone how to disappear, how to hide, how to fit in, how to blend in, how to be beige. It might have been more effective at teaching us that than it taught us anything else, which is in the business world, not particularly useful. And as a pattern of behavior, it's decidedly destructive. Because now, if you're a solo pro, you have to promote your business and you are the business, which means you've got to stand out. You can't hide and succeed. And so because it's so deeply ingrained in us, and I believe it is from our schooling, I could be wrong, maybe it's a genetic thing or whatever, but because it's so deeply ingrained in us, it feels like promoting ourselves and, and like putting yourself out there is hard. Um, but I don't actually honestly think it is <laughs> like the, the, the barrier is purely psychological. And the moment you're over it, it's like, you know, when you've done something scary, let's say jumping off a, 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 a cliff, a, like a rock face into water or something, and you stand at the top, you know, deliberating for hours and walking towards it, walking away, whatever, like you make a big song and dance about it. And when you finally jump and you hit the water, you're like, oh, that was easy. <laughs> My experience is when people finally, finally get over themselves and just go, oh, screw it, I'll, I'll allow myself to be seen just for a moment. It's that magnetic thing. It's highly attractive. Other people like you and like you've got to understand there's 8 billion people in the world. It doesn't matter how weird you are. There are heaps of people who are either like you or who like people like you, right? It does not matter how strange, how peculiar, how weird you think you are. There are millions of people around the world who think you're awesome, right? That's just a statistical certainty. And when you finally get over yourself and you jump off the little rock face down into the water and you land, and people start going, oh, hey, you seem pretty cool. Like, can we hang out? You go, oh, well, that wasn't so hard afterwards. The, the truth of it is when people are buying some product or service or whatever from a solo business, they don't really buy expertise, although it seems like they do. What they're really buying is experience. They're buying an experience of you and an experience with you. Right. So when people buy Cam and Cam's videography, in a sense, what they're really buying is they want to hang out with this guy who's kind of crazy and he's hilarious and very smart. Like there's a load of there's loads of reasons why Cam is a super cool dude to hang out with. I'm very blessed to be his brother and people want to hang out with him. So they buy his videography. If he offered a different service, if he was an MC, they'd buy that. If he was the keynote speaker, they'd buy that. If he was the guy that set up the tables in the room, they'd buy that but they're still buying Cam and his approach to life and his energy and whatever. And when we hide our authentic selves behind this veil of professionalism, we hide the most important part of the product. Yeah. Like, and it's funny, my, my book is called The Solo Pro and I help professionals be profitable. But honestly, I think professionalism is a double-edged sword like there's a lot of yin and yang going on. there's some good stuff about professionalism and there's some absolutely horrendous stuff about professionalism 
Um, I'm almost on a, on a crusade against a lot of the aspects of professionalism. Um, and one of the most insidious aspects of professionalism is we hide ourselves behind a veil of this professional outlook or whatever. And people take everything that's interesting and engaging and honestly purchasable about them and they hide it and it just neuters their ability to stand out in the market. So forgive yourself for having gone to a school that taught you to fit in. We are, you know, almost universally subjected to that. So just forgive yourself for that. And then please walk up to the edge, realize it's not that far down and just jump, just jump. I promise when you hit the water, you'll be like, no, oh, that wasn't so bad. It's actually totally fine to put yourself out there. The world's not going to come and bite you in the ass. That's really struck a chord with me listening to you there. It really has. Um, and when you shared that definition and then you sort of gave that example, you know what really jumped out for me? This podcast has had a couple of fits and starts over a little while. And I convinced myself it was, oh, you don't have enough time to do it properly and created all these ideas in my own head around why I shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. That it had all to do with what I thought and less about the feedback I was actually getting from people on how impactful those initial episodes were. Yeah. And I vowed with that level of self-awareness, I vowed that my opinion in that instance actually doesn't count. <laughs> I love that. You know, so if, if you've given me some feedback, I will thank you for that feedback. But somehow do not discredit that feedback from Cole with things that you're creating in your own mind around why he was wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. Like there's, a, there's a, a meditation teacher called Richard Lang and he teaches a thing which I think think was originally invented by another guy called Douglas something. But anyway, it's called the headless way. And the idea about it is um, you never actually look at your own face. So if you, so they talk about like the science of the first person. So in the same way that the science of the exterior world is about testing things and creating hypotheses and like looking at the world and trying to find ways to explain it. They run this meditation program, which is about examining what it feels, what it's actually like to be a person in the first person. And so you never look at your own face. And in a sense, you don't have a head because you're just looking out from it rather than, but we see every other person from a distance, from two meters away or five meters away or over the internet or whatever. And we form opinions about them from there, but every opinion we form about ourselves is formed. We are the only person in the world who never gets to look at ourselves from the outside. And so we are in some ways less qualified than anybody else in the world to say whether what we're thinking is like rational or appropriate or not. And yeah, I've loved this experience of talking to you on this podcast, George, and I'm going to, you know, recommend other people do it with you. And I'm going to listen to every episode that you put out from here on in. Right. And if me and 20 other people are telling you, this is fantastic. There's something in this. You got to keep going in a sense. It doesn't matter how much resistance you're feeling. Your opinion is the least, objective of all of them because you're the only one who can't see what it's like from the outside you're the only one trapped on the inside and so you've got to let the people around you um guide you a little bit in terms of and obviously you want to you want to 
gravitate towards the ones who are positive and who love you and who support you and all the rest of it. There are clearly many assholes in the world, but uh, let the people around you tell you how awesome you are. And when they say you're awesome, you better believe them for sure. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, you know, putting putting one's focus into the areas where we know we've got direct influence over, which is the process and um, the quality of output and preparation and all those things are far better putting your energy in the, into those spaces there rather than to after the fact random thoughts that really don't mean much at the end of the day. Yep, um, yep totally. I hear that as well, um, Cole, so many times in terms of imposter syndrome and it manifests itself in different ways. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really like your sort of summary around if you're aware of that, then you're human, you know, so well done. Yeah. Um, I've got some final bits to finish up. I've really, really enjoyed this, by the way. I've taken so Thanks, much mate. away. Thanks, Me too. Um, uh, first quick question I've got is uh, the most impactful career advice. Uh, <clears throat> it's actually the most impactful life advice, potentially. Um, I think it has to be credited to some distant Eastern philosopher, but 99% committed is really difficult and 100% committed is really easy. Um, so I've got two silly little examples for that. Well, one's not silly. It's one of them is my marriage. When I met Mish two days into our friendship, I was like, you're it. I'm going to marry you and I'm 100% committed and I don't, nothing else matters. Nothing's ever going to waver me from that. And so um, I am 100% committed to being with Mish for the rest of my life and the rest of her life. And as a result, doesn't matter what happens, it's easy. You know, we're going to have a bad day or something can go wrong or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm 100% committed, so it's easy. And the other one is um, I haven't, <laughs> everyone's got a flaw. Well, everyone's got lots of flaws, but one of mine is I Coca-Cola. I drink too much Coca-Cola. And I wasn't 100% committed to not drinking Coke. Like I couldn't, I actually really like it. Like it, I don't know why, but I really like the taste of it. And presumably my brain loves the caffeine because I don't drink coffee. But I wasn't 100% committed to quitting Coke, but I realized I could be 100% committed to never having Coke at home. And so I only ever drink Coke when I'm out. And when I was 99% committed to quitting Coke, what actually happened was I would just sneak it in here and there. And I always felt conflicted and bad about it. And I was sort of beating myself up. But now I'm 100% committed to not drinking it at home. And that means when I do drink it when I'm out, that's okay. I'm allowed to. So I'm not beating myself up. And I don't drink it at home because I'm 100% committed not to. Whatever you're doing, don't be 99% committed. Either be 100% committed or do something else. It's like, I think Ryan Holiday or someone like that wrote that book. It's either fuck yes or no. That's the philosophy. It's either absolutely yes or no, do something else. Best life advice, best business advice. Fantastic. What does impact mean to you? That's funny. Uh, I find it really easy to answer that question because there's a chapter in the Solo Pro, the book I'm writing about impact, and it yeah. talks about how the way we can have an impact is to help people solve their problems or move towards their aspirations. So impact to me is solving problems and moving towards aspirations. And anytime you're doing that, you're having an impact. Simple and makes sense. Love it. Yep. Uh, if you're having a coffee with yourself from three years ago, what advice would you provide yourself based on what you know today? 
Ah, I know that one straight away. Um, there's this there's this guy, Robert Brault. I have no idea where I found him and I honestly don't even know what he does, but he sends out like a really regular email just with one idea in it. And he had one years and years ago that is um, definitely the advice I would give my three-year-old self. I even had this advice at the time, but I didn't take it, but I'd still go back. Anyway, the quote is, uh, we are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. Love it. Yes. Right. So for loads of people listening to this, you're kept from your goal of being a successful solopreneur, not by the obstacles of being a successful solopreneur, but because it's easier to stay a relatively successful corporate whatever. Do you know what I mean? So for me, I was, I don't need to talk about the specifics of it, but three years ago I was doing something that was easy. And I allowed myself to continue doing it for longer than I needed to. Uh, and now that I'm free of it and like, I'm, I'm now right in the midst of really pursuing my goals. And like, I'm just the last six to 12 months has been one of the best rides of my life. And I could have done it three years ago, but I had a clear path to a lesser goal. So that's the advice I would have offered to myself. And to be clear, I have absolutely no regrets. My life's totally amazing, but I'm just a, my current path just feels utterly perfect and I probably could have done it a couple of years earlier. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's life and that's the evolution of us. We're, we're going to be, we're going to probably keep doing things for a little longer than what we really need to. <laughs> but when we let them go, we know it's the best thing to do to let them go and pick up new things to, to drive us towards new goals, not totally. new goals. Yeah. Um, Quick game of word association. Are you up for it? And we'll, uh, we can yeah, finish on that. Me. Okay, writing. Clarity. Like clarity Passion. of thinking. Clarity, yeah. Yep, sorry. Passion. Passion. Uh, the source of unlimited energy. Purpose. Purpose. Um, meaning and freedom. <laughs> Your happy place? Uh, it's called the Belgrave Enclave, but it's essentially my the commune where I live. I, this is the most amazing place. It's where I've always wanted to be. It's magic. I love it. Uh, love to come up there and visit you one day. Mate, you've got to come. It's pretty magic. And finally, the future. Uh, doesn't exist. Because we're in the <laughs> present. Exactly. And you're only ever in the present. The, the future is a great source of optimism. And I'm still a highly optimistic person who's highly future focused, but you never, ever, ever live in the future. Find meaning and freedom now. On that note, you are an absolute legend. And I thank you for your time. This has been um, both enjoyable and insightful. So thank you so much for your time, Cole. I really appreciate it, mate. And all the very best. Thanks, George. This has been lots and lots of fun. I think I've learned a few things about myself in answering your questions. You're a wonderful interviewer and, mate, yeah, keep cracking on this podcast. There's magic in here for sure. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, mate. Cheers. That was Cole Fink, and it's hard not feeling a sense of energy and enthusiasm about life after spending time with Cole, and that's his unique superpower. So what can we take away from this chat? Well, there are two themes I'd like for us to explore. The theme of finding your way and the theme of commitment. And we'll explore the concept of finding your way in the first instance. Hearing Cole talk about finding your way 
and his motto of no heroes reveals some powerful insights. It's not just about being great at what you do. It's about finding a way to do things that you love your way. And Cole promotes authenticity above all, and not just following trends just because others say so or because you see others doing so. The other part to this is questioning your external influences and how they're steering your choices. And finding your way is more than just a professional pursuit. It's moving in a direction that's better aligned with your passion and your purpose. So think about this. Are you mostly following the crowd or are you truly doing things your way? And does your path authentically align with your true self or your choices being guided by external pressures? The second theme revolves around commitment. And at the end of our chat, Cole left us with a very powerful insight. That 99% commitment falls short by 1%. And for Cole, true commitment is achieving the unwavering 100%. And it's just not a numerical difference here. It's actually a fundamental shift in philosophy. 100% commitment means going all in, leaving no room for doubt or hesitation. And this mindset shift recognizes that achieving excellence and realizing your dreams requires patience and dedication. Anything less and you're settling for a near enough is good enough mentality, which could impact your progress towards the success you deserve. The final reflection question I'll leave you with is this. How can you boost your commitment level from 99% to a rock solid 100%, recognizing that this extra 1% may make all the difference in achieving your goals? Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. My name is George Liberopoulos. This is the Impactology Podcast. Cheers and stay the course. Stay the course.